What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Flamethrowers, welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, here to guide you through our second best of 2019 episode of this holiday season. Happy New Year, I guess I should start off with. You're probably listening to this on New Year's Day, maybe New Year's Eve, or maybe a few days later. Who knows? Um, But we hope that your 2020 will be off to a wonderful start, and we're grateful you're starting it with us. So if you missed it, in last week's episode, we all discussed our favorite 2019 sports memories, and then we played three of our favorite podcast discussions from this last year. In this week's episode, the whole crew is going to talk about the sports things we're looking forward to in 2020, or, you know, anything we're looking forward to in 2020, I guess. Not sure how everyone interpreted that. (laughs) Then we're going to play three of our favorite interviews of the year. You're going to hear from legendary broadcaster Doris Burke, legendary Brazilian soccer player Sissy, and the great Anne Orchier from the No Olympics LA movement, surely a legend in the making. All three of those phenomenal women were on Burn It All Down this year in 2019. We are the luckiest. (laughs) But first, like I said, we're going to talk about what we're looking forward to in 2020. Since Jess went in alphabetical order last week, I'm going to reverse that. Keep everyone on your toes. So you're first going to hear from freelance journalist and cat lover, Shireen Ahmed from Toronto, Canada. Then I'm going to go. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, the author of the Power Plays newsletter. Then it'll be Jessica Luther, freelance reporter and author in Austin, Texas, followed by Dr. Brenda Elsie, associate professor at Hofstra University, and Dr. Amir Rose Davis, assistant professor at Penn State. All right, friends, what are you looking forward to in 2020? What I am looking forward to most in 2020 is probably the NBA championships, the playoffs. I'm super excited to do a repeat for Toronto, obviously. Um, I have a goal. I would like to attend my first WNBA game. I have a Kianers New York Liberty jersey, and I would like to wear that at a New York Liberty game. Um, I think I am also really looking forward to the things and the conversations around the Summer Olympics in Tokyo this year. Um my friend Jules Boykoff is writing a book and we've had no Olympics, you know, activists on the show just to really raise awareness about how problematic Olympics and mega events can be, but also talk about how amplifying women in sport is really important. Um, the ICC World T20 Cricket Tournament is happening and I would, I'm excited for that. I love women's cricket and I'm really, really excited. One of my favorite interviews was of Nasira Muhammad. And she talked a lot about, you know, cricket and women's cricket. I just, I think there's so many exciting things happening. I would also like to see 
women's hockey in Canada make a comeback in some regard. So hopefully I'm going to hear about something happening in that realm and, you know, watching more women's hockey, be it the Dream Gap Tour or something. But I would love to see something stable for these women because they're amazing. And I like women's hockey is just so great. So um, there's a lot of things I'm really excited for. I'm also really excited to continue working on the Burn It All Down team and smash toxic patriarchy in sports as we do. So there's some really cool things happening in the sports world and the Burn It All Down world. And I can't wait for those two to collide. It's Lindsay again. So as many as you know, as many of you know, <laughs> I started a newsletter, Power Plays, a couple of months ago. And one of the things I'm really hoping to do is to be able to travel more as the newsletter grows. Um, you know, to be able to make enough money to travel to women's sports events so I can give my readers some extra special coverage. Because of that, I'm planning my dream travel calendar of the season right now, and I'm just getting beyond excited. So right now I'm looking forward to so many things in 2020. Um, obviously, women's basketball is one of my top loves, so I can't wait till we get closer to tournament time. I can't wait to see how the top of women's basketball is going to shake up this year and to see if Oregon can finally win their first national title. Um, I'm really Obviously, can't wait for WNBA season. See if the Mystics can uh, can run it back again, can get their second straight championship. The Olympics, it's just a wonder of women's sports. I, if I start listing everything about the Olympics I'm excited about, I will run out of time. Um, but, you know, in the short term, one of the things I'm very curious about and looking forward to seeing is how this WNBA collective bargaining agreement is going to work out. They've extended the deadline to January 15th, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about that a lot on Burn It All Down. Um, as I mentioned with my traveling, my big things I'm looking forward to this year that I'm determined to make happen are to get to the women's final four in new orleans that would be my first women's final four uh, in basketball um to get to two live women's hockey games um this this winter and spring so in the next few months to this summer travel to an nwsl stadium i've never been to for a game to also travel to a WNBA stadium i've never been to for a game also want to attend my first lpga event and go to the women's college world series for the first time there are a lot more on my dream list. My calendar is getting stuffed with dreams, um, but those are my big travel priorities. I'm also looking forward to seeing Brianna Stewart back in action. I'm looking forward to seeing Serena Williams win number 24, Venus go on a mir miraculous singles run so she makes the Olympics team, and I'm looking forward to Cam Newton being back on the Carolina Panthers. If you speak it, it will come. So I am looking forward to the Olympics in Tokyo this upcoming summer, though I'm sure we'll talk about this plenty on Burn It All Down. I have lots of mixed feelings about the Olympics in general, but specifically, I am looking forward to watching Katie Ledecky swim. I love the USA women's basketball team. I mean, get ready for Simone Biles. Skateboarding and surfing are coming to the Olympics. I can't wait to see that and see how they show it to us on television. The CONCACAF qualifying for the Olympics for US, for soccer is going to be in Houston in February. So I'm going to cross my fingers that maybe I can make it to Houston for that. Uh, you know, 2020 Serena Watch will continue. I deeply love tennis and I'm always excited to see where 
that's going to go, especially for the women. Um, we never sort of know what's going to happen with them, especially at this point. Um, but I really hope we see new male champions this year. I think that would be great in the sport. Really needs that. I always look forward to March Madness, of course, the WNBA over the summer, Brianna Stewart's return, Sabrina Ionescu is going to join the W, I miss you Liz Cambage, I cannot wait until I get to watch all those women play ball again. Uh, I think it's going to be another fun year for sports in 2020, and I feel like we're just going to really need sports this year. I feel like it's going to be a rough go, especially for us USENs that are going to be dealing with some politics and all those, all that good stuff. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. 2020. What am I looking forward to? Um, so we talked a lot about problematic faves on this show. So I guess I have to admit, I'm really excited for the Barcelona-Napoli matchup in February for the European Champions League. I wish um, I wasn't as excited as I am, um, but uh, to be honest, that's it. I also am a big sucker for the Olympics, um, as well as the writing of a lot of friends of the show, like uh, Jules Boykoff and Shireen, and people on this show, Shireen, Jessica, Lindsay, um, Amira, who certainly will have a lot to write um, about Tokyo. So I look forward to both love watching and hate watching those Olympics. I'm also really looking forward to other opportunities for Burn It All Down to be together. I think there's, you know, some live shows that we had last year and will continue to have in the upcoming year. And that's always wonderful. And it starts for me uh, in January with the American Historical Association meeting where I get to present on athletes and labor with Dr. Amira Rose Davis, my co-host. So I'm super psyched about that and to start the new year learning a bunch of new stuff um, from people doing history of sport. So that's pretty exciting as well. Also, um, I expect to get to be a, a lot of the qualifiers for the uh, 2022 World Cup in Qatar as South America starts its round of qualifying. Again, a pretty problematic fave, but something that I, I love to do. I love to work with FAIR and develop both grassroots projects and help with the monitoring of racism, homophobia, and gender violence with them. So I'm excited to continue that work too. And of course, you know, smashing toxic patriarchy every single week with, uh, with these people. What sporting moment am I best looking forward to in 2020? Well, as much as I critique the Olympics as an institution and we've had great interviews with um, No Olympics LA um, and talking about the detrimental effects that the Olympic Games have in Pyeongchang and this year looking towards Tokyo. Um, I have to say I'm still really looking forward to um, the Olympic Games, the Games themselves. I'm eager to see Simone Biles just go to new heights um, in gymnastics, and and uh, it really feels like she's 
absolutely no ceiling. So I just can't wait to see what the Olympics has in store for her. I'm also excited for people like Morgan Hurd on the gymnastics team, hoping, you know, if she makes the team um, to really have a kind of breakout moment at the games. My girl Gwen Berry on the track to see Allison Felix's comeback, to look at people like Sid McLaughlin, um, stars that we've seen just maybe flicker once or twice, but really have their moment to shine, especially in Olympic sports that um, people wait four years for and train four years for this moment. I'm excited for that. I'm excited to see the U.S. uh, national team back in action under new leadership and maybe some new faces. Um, I'm hoping Casey Short makes the makes the roster. Um, so those are the things that I'm looking forward to all around the um, Olympic Games. Um, I think that's that's what I'm absolutely most looking forward to. Of course, the Celtics are playing kind of well, so I might be looking forward to the postseason in the NBA. Who knows? Um, but I'm going to go with the Olympics. Our first interview goes back to episode 107 when Brenda interviewed legendary Brazilian soccer player Sissy, the golden boot winner of the 1999 World Cup. They talk about her memories from that tournament and the state of women's soccer in Brazil. I'm thrilled today to get to talk once again to Sissy, the amazing, legendary Brazilian women's player who is now youth director and coach at Walnut Creek and also assistant coach for Solano College. She was the 1999 Golden Boot winner and has about a million awards. Sissy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Brent, for having me. I just wanted to start really quickly. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 1999 World Cup, which is seen as one of the glorious moments in the history of the women's game. Could you tell me a little bit about what your memories are or what your your when you look back, what you think of? Oh, my gosh, that is a lot of good memories. I think it's, uh, of course, besides losing to us <laughs> of course because every every time when especially when i have to talk to my friends about 99 especially here in the united states they always like yeah but you guys lost to us okay that's fine uh, but you know it was probably one of the most i'll say the best experience in my life with the national team with that group and i it, it's funny because right before we had to go for the training camp. I had a bad injury and I'm not supposed to even play that year if I have to follow my doctor's instruction because basically I'm supposed to have a surgery. And I say, there is no way for me to have a surgery because I knew something special was on the way. I can't, I don't know how to describe that, but I had that feeling that's something special. And I said, sorry, but I can't have any surgery right now. So I had, you know, broke bones on my face playing futsal. And he said, sorry, but you got to go. You have to have surgery. I said, no, I, that is no way. So I, I went to the camp and I had to basically lie to the doctors because nobody knew besides my, you know, closest friend, friends. But I went to the training camp 
nobody knew exactly what was going on. Of course, you know, I had before that black eyes. It was it was it was bad. I had to go to the emergency room and everything. And why when the doctor came back and say, you know, we you gotta go straight to the we gotta have surgery. I said, no, no that is no way. So I went to training camp and we came to United States and things start to like happen, you know, and I was never a player that scored a lot of goals before because my job was to be the playmaker, to build the, the plays and have the vision of the field. That's always my job, but I was never like a finisher. And things start to happen, you know, for me. And it was unbelievable. And I remember well enough that even like talking to the players afterwards, especially girls from uh, like Brandy, there was always a question mark, are we going to be able to sell tickets? You know, so it was when we start to see like people coming to the games, I couldn't believe it. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening. You know, it was, it was thrill to go be on the bus, go to the state and you see that much people come and watch our game. It was unbelievable. So it was definitely one of the best experiences that I ever had in my whole life. And not even as a soccer player, but with the national team, the group was very special for me. We had the same common goals and it, it was it was beautiful to watch after. And especially now to see that much to see how much, you know, the, the people coming to the games and the final especially, it was, I was speechless. You know, even though we play for third place, but to see all, who play, who had the chance to be part of that, I don't think they're ever going to forget that. And I have to say, I, I cry walking, leaving the locker room to go to to the field and, and you look around, I, I felt like lost. <laughs> it was I was, yeah, yeah, definitely was the best experience. So I was very fortunate to be part of that. Do you remember any one of the goals in particular that was your favorite? You know, of course, the the goal that I scored against Italy, I scored one with my left foot, one with my right foot. And it was, it was my first time scoring a goal with my right foot. But the goal against Nigeria, I... That feeling, you know, winning 3-0 and they tie 3-3. We go to the overtime, the first golden goal, women's history. So I scoring that goal, running through the fans. I almost took my shirt off. <laughs> that sensation, you know, all the sacrifices, all that, the weight. I, I don't know. It was, that goal was special. All the goals that I score, definitely each one was special for me. But the last, that one against Nigeria was probably one of the best on my career. And on everything, because, you know, we, I'd say there is no way we're going to stop right here. We still have a lot to show. So, but I say there is no way for, you know, we, we're not going to Nigeria took that moment from us, but it was a, a very crazy game overall. Did you feel like people in Brazil got a big message that women's football was, was sort of here to stay in Brazil? A little bit. I think here I got the sensation that, yes, now we are moving forward. 
in Brazil, not so much. When we came back, we had maybe few people that came to to the airport. It was, again, it doesn't matter the number for me because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the first time we have people to come and waiting for us, you know? At that point, it was not about the quantity, but it was more, yes, they're here. They finally start to understand, yes, we can do this. We don't try to compete against men, you know, so that's not exactly what we are trying to. We we want to make sure we still have our space. We want to show that we can play, but it was not like have the feeling living United States, you know what I mean? Because you you knew at that moment, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. We can do this. So yeah, people pay attention more because we have a message to deliver. So, but in Brazil, it took time and it's been like this. So every time we have a competition, people talk, you know, everybody got excited. But after that, we're going back to the world war. It's, it's not, it's not like when Brazil is preparing for a men's world cup is, is very different. So who knows? Right. I have a question that is not really as political as it is just about your game. And I've watched a lot of those old uh, footage. I've always thought of you as an attacking midfielder. And as you said, a playmaker. But you didn't wear eight, which is frequently what we think of as like the signature Uh South American, right? Number. So why 10? Let's go back like in... When I start playing professionally for the first time at age 14, my first coach said, you're going to be a number 10, but I didn't have an idea what means we're number 10. Of course, I knew about Pelé, you know, and basically all the players that I start to like, they were all number 10s, you know, Pelé, Zico, all those players that I I say, oh my gosh, they're so brilliant. They, they, the way they play, um, so he said, going to be number 10, but, but it was not like an explanation why I should be. And I finally start to understand more later, but it always came with the pressure because they always, people say, oh, the best players always going to work, you know, number 10. And it was not the case. It was more, okay, you're going to be the number 10 because that's the, the playmaker. You know, that's the player that are very, they, they are different. I like, but I never look at myself of being different, you know? So, but that's what, after I start to have a better understanding and, and it took time because I knew it came with a lot of pressure and people trying to compare me with, you know, those guys. And I didn't want that. I want to be myself. I didn't want to be people trying to compare me with, you know, Oh, that's Pelé. That's, that is, that's no way. I say, I want to create my own identity. But I, yes, I was that attacking midfielder, the player that is going to make things happen, the player that have the freedom. I didn't have a lot of responsibility of the, I was never good on defending, but I even they have to adjust my game. But that was the case. For me, they say, here, go ahead. But at the beginning, I didn't know. I start to have maybe, and I accept more later on, but I didn't want people always to compare me with those guys. Or even though I was, they were my idols, but I say, that's going to be me. So, but it was nothing, you know, with eight, it was more that 10. And 
that's what you're going to be. And we still, it's funny because I don't see a lot of players like that anymore, even on women's soccer, you know. And that's what I tried to create here. I say, can we create that number 10 again? Because, you know, even Marta, Marta is more a finisher, but Marta is not a playmaker. And but we were the opposite. My game was very different than hers. So I still feel I, I still, I have, you know, I'm still missing that, that, that player, you know, even on men's um, watching Brazil. I don't think Neymar is the playmaker either. And that's what I try to create here, you know, with my team. I say, can I create that number 10? And it's be very difficult because it's not easy. So, friends, you see, I don't know if you're ever going to see a play like you, you know. Uh, the game changed so much. But, yes, I do miss that player, players that I You miss that version before. of number 10. I do. I really do. We still have, you know, again, they always compare me with Marta, but we are very opposite. Besides being lefty, but, you know, yeah. Marta is more a finisher. She dribbles more. I I was more, my game was more, okay, create plays, you know, see the whole field, have the vision. Very different. And how do you think, you've been a, a very successful futsal player as well. Do you think that was really important in shaping you? Yes. I think I was a better futsal player than, honestly, I, futsal helped me so much because it's a tight space. You got to think very fast. There's a lot of movement off the ball and there's a lot of thinking, you know, there's a lot of decision making, but it helped me with my touches as well. So futsal, sometimes you don't have time on the ball and that helped me so much. And when I was, you know, of course, on a soccer field, it was a little bit different. But I, I enjoy because it's allowed me to be thinking all the time. And I can hear you snapping. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly. snappy, snappy. <laughs> but yes, I play for many years in Brazil. Even here, I enjoy when I have to play four versus four, you know, example, in a tight space. And I think that's where the creativity came from. Futsal is... And now is here. It's growing. Yeah, um, so in the U.S. You mean in California? Yes, and I'm trying to incorporate this in in our program to make sure the girls play futsal because it's very important. And when your team, when the '99, that generation of Brazilian players, when most of them were born, there was a legal ban on women playing football in Brazil and playing soccer in Brazil, which is pretty unique. But it seems as though that didn't get in any of your way. No, no, not my way at all. I, of course, you know, I was born in very small town. Everybody knew each other. It was me and playing with boys. But I play on, you know, a lot of times it was me playing with my dad and my brother until I had access to playing with boys. But I, it was me doing a lot of training on my own. Cause, but I, I start with my doll's head, for you to know. And my first soccer ball was my doll's head because my, my brother and my dad said, oh, what, what are you doing? You know you shouldn't be playing soccer. I'm like, who cares? So I was very persistent. I did not let, again, say, you cannot do this. My mom say, you know that is not future. But I heard about this law and I say, who cares? 
I'm in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to pay attention to that? Esplanada, for people who don't know. Esplanada, Brazil. Exactly. So when I moved to, my dad got a new job. We have to move to a different city. And again, here we go again. And I finally saw the first girl playing soccer. And it was in Campo Formoso. Again, in the middle of nowhere. And I start to like, okay, now finally I can do something. I don't have to be, you know, but it still, I, it, I had to be with playing with the boys and I got in trouble a lot because of that. But luckily <laughs> I heard about there was this team in a, a, this different city one hour from where I was living and they say, oh, they're looking for players. So I finally said, okay, let's go. And I joined this team, first organized team. In Ciudad de Bonfim, one hour from my city, and that's when I start to play. You know, I, I heard a lot of things about the Hada that was from Rio de Janeiro. I heard about there was this team in Rio, and I said, that's it. And my mom, like, again, my goal for you is to make sure you're going to finish your, you're going to finish school, you're going to be a teacher. I'm like, no way. That's not going to happen. I want to become a professional soccer player. I want to play for Brazil. And that's it. And I had that. It was already inside of my head. That's what I want to do. And the 14, that's 14, play a double header. This team came from Feira de Santana. And we play, he brought men's and women's soccer. We play a double header. He's like, okay, can you, do you want to join? And I say, you got to talk to my parents. <laughs> he drove to my house, talked to my parents, my mom. That is no, what? 14 years old? You think that you're going to leave? I say, yes, I will. You got to let me. And my dad at the point, he, he knew this girl, she was born with a gift. Even though my, my dad's dream was for my brother to become a professional soccer player. And my brother say, no, I'm, I'll not do that. Not because he wants to. So... I'd say, you got to let me go. You, you got to let me go. And I say, I'll promise I'll finish school. I'll go to school every day, but please let me go. And that's when I left. Sissy, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. And go Brazil. Next up, uh, from episode 115, I interviewed Anne Orchier, an organizer with the No Olympics LA, about their quest to stop the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles as we look forward to our 2020 Olympics. And we are looking forward to it. It's really important to keep in mind all the ways that the Olympics are also bad. And I thought this would be a good chance to re-listen to that interview so we can kind of hold these two things simultaneously. Hello, everyone. Lindsay here, and joining me is Anne Ortier, a organizer with No Olympics LA, an anti-Olympics movement that is trying to get the Olympics away from Los Angeles and maybe kind of uh, help us come up with a new model altogether to do this. Anne, thank you so much for being here on Burn It All Down. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I guess like let's just get let's just dive right into it. No Olympics LA, why don't you 
want the Olympics to be in LA because, you know, I've heard tons of things about how good it's going to be for Los Angeles. You know, Mayor Garcetti has been on all these podcasts over the years that I've listened to. So why should, what are the downsides of the Olympics being in LA? Yeah, I think um, something that's important to keep in mind whenever people talk about the benefits of the Olympics. So for example, someone like Eric Garcetti, who will who will talk about kind of what the Olympics, what people stand to gain from the, hosting the Olympics in LA. And for him, that's true. He personally stands to gain a lot from hosting the Olympics in LA. The Olympics are a great way for um, for people who are already based in centers of power, who have a lot of resources, um, who have a lot of money. The Olympics are a great way to accumulate more power, resources, and money and disenfranchise anybody who's standing in your way of that. If you are not uh, part of the ruling class, essentially, if you're not one of the people who stands to, who already is like part of that like super, super powerful minority, you get screwed over basically in every way possible. So that's the majority of people in a host city. And typically we look at their like six major impacts that the Olympics have on host cities and on the residents of host cities, kind of excluding that minority elite. And that's environmental destruction and decimation, displacement, accelerated gentrification, just basically like out of control real estate speculation, criminalization of poverty and informal economies, just really accelerated and exacerbated police militarization. And also just keeping in mind these these ten these are things in Los Angeles that we already see on an ongoing basis. So we're not saying the Olympics caused these. It's just that they they basically like pour gasoline on the, the fire. Yeah, I think one of the things that has been staggering for me is I've studied up on your movement over the past year or so and written about it um, from time to time at Think Progress has been really how, you know, there can be all these regulations in place, but in a mega event like the Olympics throws all those regulations out the window. And it just seems like it gives those in power the authority to do whatever they want. Particularly, let's talk a little about about the environmental impact. There are certain kind of environmentally safe steps that don't have to be followed if they're using the excuse that they're building these projects or these these stadiums or housing or hotels for the Olympics. And another thing that, and I think we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, which is that ICE would have a lot of access to the LAPD, right? Like ICE can kind of uh, be much more involved in the local policing. Yeah, I think similar to the environmental regulations, I would say just like as a kind of blanket statement, whether it's about housing, whether it's about environmental protections and regulation, whether it's about policing, one way that we, we've sort of talked about and thought about the Olympics or I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of, or your listeners with just with a, like the state of exception, which is the idea, you know, in politics, it's mainly has referred to the kind of like post 9-11 security state mm-hmm. and the idea that like in moments of crisis, political actors and, and people in power will use that crisis to say, you know, this is a state of exception. All of the, all of the sort of like normal operating procedures around whatever it is, protecting privacy, like that's suspended. And now we have to kind of go into this like hyper vigilant mode. And we see something similar happen with the Olympics. But it's, you know, obviously, it's, it's instead of a, a crisis, it's a, you know, like, like a celebration, basically. It's like, we're having this big party and this big thing that needs to happen. And so every everything that would normally be like a non starter, 
or that people would get upset about suddenly is some somehow permissible and like and then those things get normalized. So for the example of policing and um, as you mentioned with ICE, and this is also literally connected to the the like traditional sense of the state of exception. Since September 11th, uh, Olympic Games have been designated a national special security event, which means that it basically mandates what's called a unified command between federal and local law enforcement. So originally, NSSEs were things like state funerals, the Democratic National Convention. And the idea is that there are events that might be potential terrorism targets. That's the justification for it. Of course, in the case of the Olympics, like there have been, you know, sort of like two high profile terrorist incidents, but actually the, the like highest body counts for Olympics are of residents of the host city at the hands of local police. Like that's actually the most dangerous, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about like potential uh, violence and like risk related to the Olympics, it's not the terrorist threat. It's what happens when you like pour millions and billions of dollars um, into local police forces and give them, you know, high tech weapons and surveillance and basically like carte blanche to do whatever they want to like keep things clean and calm for the wealthy tourists. So so that's what happened in LA in 84. Um, I was about to say that that was a big part of like the riots, right? Like like yeah. what led up to the riots. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Basically, you know, Gates, the LAPD in the 80s, you know, for the Olympic Games, he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted, given tons of money, like high grade military equipment. And that was basically what, what sort of provided the foundation for the war on drugs in LA in the, the mid to late 80s and then leading up into the early 90s. So we know that there's plenty of reasons not to have an LA, but you are hoping to make this a more global movement. I know that you and some other organizers are headed to Tokyo. Can you tell mm-hmm. us why are you going there and what, uh, what should we be looking out for? So we've recognized that in order for any of us to be effective, like the people who are behind the Olympics games, those interests, whether it's the IOC, the real estate speculators, the corp, you know, corporations and public sponsors, they're organizing transnationally, like they're working together. They're all so it doesn't make sense for us to just focus on we have to also be thinking at that level, because that's, that's the level that we're being organized against. So some of it is on that pragmatic level, on a political level, too, it's about recognizing that our, our struggles are connected, that these are the same problems, and that we're all you, you know, we're all more likely and, and better equipped to solve them if we're working together rather than than sort of like trying to just pawn the games off onto another city. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are we going to see from you all? I know there's a day of action. I believe it's July 24th. Is that correct? Yeah, July 24th is the is the International Day of Action. And we're having a big there's the organizers in Tokyo have planned an event in Tokyo. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm just really personally looking forward to seeing like, how folks in different cities and countries are approaching things like coordinated direct actions, uh, how they're choosing targets, what the, you know, parameters are. They for folks uh, who haven't looked at them, the the name of the group is Hunger and No Kai. And if you they have Twitter and I don't think they have Instagram, but they have Twitter and a website. And you can see they make I think personally, do they make like the most amazing posters? Most of them are out of cardboard. They've done a lot of these sort of like installations around the parks. They formed mainly out in response to the criminalization and displacement of unhoused folks in Tokyo. 
which has been accelerating in the lead up to the Olympics and getting sort of more aggressive and violence. You know, Japan has some laws about the rights of, of unhoused people to occupy public spaces that we don't have in the U.S. So they've made a lot more traction on that front. We're seeing we're seeing all of that kind of like start to just go out the window and be increasingly violated in the lead up to the games, um, along with a, a pretty concerted attack on public housing. So on that note, too, one of the things that I'm also personally really excited about and have been working really hard on is we're going to have we're going to have an event towards the end where we we all get together and just talk more generally about about the impact on housing and organizing as tenants and unhoused folks and organizing together and kind of what that's looked like in each of our different cities and countries, like what have the challenges been, what are the contexts, what are the the things that we're all kind of seeing happen that are similar, what are the things that are different, and then how do we all work together not just in the context of stopping the Olympics collectively, but particularly around the the right to, you know, the right to housing and residence. But here's another thing is that we, you know, we here at Bird It All Down, we are a sports podcast. We do love sports and we do love the Olympics. So it's always a tough thing for us. And it's something we discuss a lot, which is how do, you know, you kind of like ethically watch the Olympics, knowing, you know, what is going on on the ground in these host countries, knowing the corruption in the IOC, knowing the corruption within so many of these federations. Do you, I mean, I think it's often, you know, the, the problem often is if you're an activist, if you're against something, you have to have absolutely all the answers on how to fix that. So I'm not expecting that from you, but just like, where, where would you like to see us go from here? Is the answer to just kind of like, get rid of this competition. Like is, is, and and it might be like, that might be the answer. And that might just be something we all need to grapple with because it's not worth it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the short answer is like, yes, but I, you know, so I think we all, we all basically like appreciate the importance uh, and value of like athletic competition and physical activity, but it's really the, about the, you know, profit motives, right? It's like, that's, that's the thing. It's the IOC. It's the collaboration between the IOC and the corporations and the politicians. And then, so the short answer is like, I don't think that there's a way to reform the Olympics as long as those are the people running it. But I don't think that that means that we get rid of like international sporting competitions. It's just about how do you take that profit motive out? How do you build in accountability? And we actually, there's a video, if you go to our website, olympicsla.com slash videos, we made a, a video this past year called Swolshalism. I didn't come up with the name, so I can't <laughs> take it. Right? I, think it's, I think it's cute and funny. And it's basically like, it's a good like little explainer on the history of, of basically like anti-capitalist, like international sporting events, of which there are a lot of but we don't know about because they don't have the same like you know crazy multi-gazillion dollar like branded stranglehold on our consciousness that the olympics do but those have existed and in particular there have been like two like basically like communist like protest games in response to the olympics so one was in response to the 1936 berlin games the nazi games there was sort of like a counter a counter olympics organized by a communist party so that exists. There are models for that. And again, I appreciate you saying it's like we don't have to come up with all the answers because, yeah, the the sort of project of taking down the IOC and the Olympics is just a, a big enough task yeah. in itself. <laughs> yeah, you're I, busy. You're busy. Yeah. <laughs> we got some stuff on, stuff on our plate. 
but I do welcome like I think people should look into these other alternatives and I think I think these models exist and I do think it's possible to come up with an alternative that is not dominated by like corporate greed and destruction and and just like exploitation basically like yeah the IOC and all of those the interests that it represents they're just sucking the marrow out of like every human being city natural resource like that they can. And so when you take them out of the equation and start to look at other people who have run games that are are not dominated by that that sort of level of rapacity, it seems pretty cool. Like I would be really excited about that. I would be super excited about a like a collectively run international sporting competition where like athletes actually got paid just for LA for the movement that you guys are running um, in LA on the ground. What, what are the next steps? Cause I know that it's, it's technically official that, you know, LA has the 2026 Olympics, right? But that's also a long way off. And I know I've talked to some people within your organization who say there's still pot hope that we can defeat this. Yeah, absolutely. And I would actually, I would push back a little bit on that, like, that idea of, oh, it's official, and ask, like, what does that really mean? Right? And and sort of getting back to the idea of how, like, who the IOC is, like, they, okay, they have sort of given their permission, and they've said, like, they, they've sort of bestowed this, you know, quote, unquote, honor onto LA of hosting the 2028 Olympics. But they make up the rules as they go along. You know, this is not something that is like handed down from a higher power. Like we don't, we don't have to make them in charge of this. Well, there's sort of two good examples of, of like why we can sort of question this idea of what it means for the bid to be official. One is we actually, we have historical precedent in Denver in the seventies, Denver rejected a bid that was official. Oh, okay. So it's, it's actually happened. It has happened before. Like it could happen again. The other one is Amazon. Right. Yeah. So I think we're entering this era where it's like important to look around and ask or not. It's critical (laughs) that we say when we have when we enter these junctures of like, oh, this is official. This is happening. There's nothing we can do. We can step back and say like, well, wait, why? Why is this happening? Just because a couple of really like hyper wealthy, powerful people decided behind closed doors that this was going to happen. Like now we have to accept it. Like we don't. We can say no. So it's really about getting pressure on maybe some local politicians, local power brokers to keep pushing back on this. And of course, organizers on the ground, which are the most important. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what we've seen in the past is basically the IOC, the IOC pretty much like will pack up and slink off at any sign of of local opposition and democracy. The IOC, it's been super cushy for them for the last whatever, like 100 years or so where they could just come in, do whatever they wanted. They're not accountable to anyone. They take home huge stacks of money from this process. And it makes sense, like when you think about it, that anytime there's like a little bit of friction, anytime there's a little bit of even annoyance, they just will say like, you know what, not worth it. And we saw that like when Oslo rejected the bid, one of the main sort of critiques that Oslo, that residents of Oslo had weren't even around like the impacts to the city like people were really upset about and this is i i haven't talked to organizers in oslo so apologies to anyone who's listening if i'm like mischaracterizing their opposition but from what i've read one of the centerpieces of their opposition was all of the the demands that the ioc had 
including like, oh, we need private jets, we need to take over your, you know, your highways and your transport, we need all of, you know, all of these like accommodations, basically. And residents of Oslo were like, we don't want to subsidize that. And the IOC just said, kind of like, okay, like, we're done with you then. And so that's the like, it's, they pretty much will pack up pretty quickly at the signs of democracy, essentially, at the signs of people exercising their collective right to, to speak out and to determine like what's going to happen in their own city. All right. Well, listen, thank you so, so much. I'm so excited to see what happens in Tokyo and to continue to follow along. And we will continue to check in with all of you and please keep us updated on all the work uh, you are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Finally, from our episode 100, a very special interview from a very special episode, Jessica sat down with Doris Burke, who really needs no introduction, but that's what I'm doing here anyways. (laughs) Doris is the first woman to be a full-time NBA game analyst for ESPN on the national level. Of course, she's the woman that Drake crushes on every day. And she's simply just one of the best in the business. This interview was a highlight of the year for this podcast. It's long, but it's worth revisiting every second of it. I'm very excited today to welcome Doris Burke, the Doris Burke to burn it all down. If somehow you're not familiar with her name, you will most likely know her voice. Doris has been a full-time NBA color commentator for ESPN for the last two years, the first woman ever to have a regular NBA game analyst role on the national level. Over nearly the last three decades, she has also provided commentary for countless women's and men's college basketball games and for the WNBA. Additionally, and not least, she is a world-class sideline reporter and one of the best in-game and post-game interviewers in the business. Last year, she became the first female broadcaster to receive the Basketball Hall of Fame's Kurt Gowdy Media Award. She is also a former basketball player herself. She played at Providence College, and according to her bio at ESPN, when she graduated, she held seven records there. She was the school and conference all-time assist leader with 602, Providence's single-season leader in assists with 224, and in free throws, both for single-season 152 and in her career, 440. All right. Thank you for being on Burn It All Down, Doris Burke. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Have... Well, you did your research. You're going back a long way to find those Providence College numbers. <laughs> well, they're just right. ESPN's got them right there. So oh, they're easily yes. available. I have so many questions for you. So I'm just going to jump in. I want to start at the beginning. For those who don't know or who haven't read one of the many amazing profiles that have come out about you in the last couple of years, how and when did you find basketball? I was seven years old, um, the last of eight children, very Irish Catholic family, and my parents decided to move to accommodate my father's job. When I was seven, we moved from Long Island to a small, very small town, one mile square town on the Jersey Shore called Manasquan, very difficult to enunciate. (laughs) And the home that my parents purchased was literally right next door to a park. And I think it was the very first day we moved down there. You can imagine a seven-year-old is not going to help in a move. There was a basketball left in the yard, and my mom sort of put it in my hands and said, why don't you go over there and and do something with that? (laughs) So I feel like I've been chasing that basketball since I was seven years of age. So you're obviously a pioneer when it comes to women in broadcasting. But I wanted to know, did you have women that you looked up to or who were role models for you? I, what made you believe that you could be the first in all these different ways in your career? 
Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you I'm uncomfortable with that word only because there are women who are my predecessors who experienced things in locker rooms that I never had to experience. You know, Susie Waldman, the great New York Yankees, longtime New York Yankees announcer, tells a story being in a Major League Baseball locker room. And I'm not sure how deep into her career she is. I believe she was in the Toronto Blue Jays locker room. Not sure if it was home or visitors, but it was a Toronto Blue Jays game. And you know what it's like after a post game. There's a media scrum. There could be as many as, you know, 10 to 15 people around the star of that particular game Mm -hmm. trying to get questions answered. And this particular baseball player says to her all those many years ago, I'm not talking until that blank leaves. Oh, my. And the rest of the writers sort of turn around and look at Susie as if to say, hey, could you cut us a break and get out of here? And Susie talks about that being a breaking point in her career. You know, she had been through so much at that point when another baseball player calls from across the room and says, young lady, if you would like to speak to a professional athlete, I'd be happy to answer any question you have. Hmm. And she talks about that man basically saving her career. So, I mean, Jessica, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, Jackie McMullen, Robin Roberts, all these women predate me and have faced a level of resistance that I have not. I'm not telling you I haven't faced any, simply telling you that by the time I entered the business, it was different. So those would be the women, Jackie McMullen, because she is in basketball and is so highly respected. It's somebody that I have read with great enjoyment for years. I have watched in arenas as these coaches and players clearly respect the work that she does and how she conducts herself as a person, as a professional. Uh, Robin Roberts, you know, begins in sports, but then skyrockets to incredible heights as a news anchor for ABC. And it's just, you know, it's it's cool for me. It's cool. And what, what excites me the most, perhaps, you know, I look at a woman like Maria Taylor or Laura Rutledge, hmm. and I think, gosh, these women are going to rule the world someday. <laughs> it, it, puts a, it puts a smile on my face. And they're so much more composed and well thought at their respective ages than I was at my career. So I appreciate the people that went before me. And I am excited about the people who are coming after me. Yeah, that's such a good point. I was just yesterday watching Maria Taylor's when I was watching March Madness and thinking she was doing such a fabulous job. I wanted to ask about finding your voice. And I mean this like in a very literal way. Women in particular are heavily policed by how they sound. And when I interviewed Mary Carrillo last year for mm-hmm. this show, she told me that she thought her deeper voice was probably an advantage in the sense that people were less likely to criticize her for it. And you have this soothing but authoritative voice. And I was wondering if that's something you worked at or that came naturally to you. How did you how did you find that voice? No, I certainly didn't work at it. And I know that there are play-by-play men who have voice lessons or, and in particular, it's the play-by-play. And I'm not sure, I've never asked Beth Mowens if she's had to do this. Because when you work a certain number of games, the, obviously your vocal cords can get tired. And so I would tell you that, no, I, I really have never had any professional media training. I did not go to a famous J school, Missouri, Syracuse, I happened into this business, to be perfectly honest with you, I left coaching in 1990 Mm -hmm. because I wanted to get married and have a family, and I didn't think I could be both a great coach and uh, stay at home and do what I wanted to do with my children in their formative years. 
I happened into the business. That's that's the truth. I, I when when I left coaching at Providence College, they put women's basketball their games on radio, and the AD at the time, because I had played and coached in the program, said, "Hey, why don't you give this a try?" And that was literally the formative stages, maybe 10 to 15 games of Providence College and then a TV game or two that year in New England. So I, I didn't have any formal training. I will say, you know, it's interesting when you start, it almost sounds forced to you. You're not sure how your voice should sound. Hmm. At some point as a broadcaster, I think you become comfortable with, <laughs> oh my goodness, you know, I have to be me because if I try to be anything else, the viewer is going to hear it. They're going to feel it. They're going to see it. And, you know, after a number of repetitions and it takes some time, you do just simply settle in and say, okay, I'm going to have to be me. And if that's okay, that's okay. And if it isn't, that's okay too. And the reality is this, Jessica, the job that I do in terms of people evaluating it, it's a very subjective thing. Mm -hmm. You could be in the same room hearing two people discuss one announcer and their opinions could be 180 degrees from each other. It's just the nature of things. For whatever reason, stylistically, stylistically, one announcer, it can be more appealing to someone than another. And you, you can't please everybody. So in 2017, after you did the trophy presentation at the end of the NBA finals, which was a masterclass and how to handle that particularly chaotic moment, you said in an interview with Richard Deist, who was then at Sports Illustrated, that, quote, as a broadcaster, it took me a good 10 to 15 years to relax and allow myself to enjoy the job. And when I was reading this in preparation for this interview, I was wondering, like, how were you able to finally relax? Like, was it just it took time in the role or was there something that led you to finally sort of breathe in the job? Well, a couple of things. Certainly, again, the more you do a job, the more comfortable you become with it, the more in command you become. You know, it took me years to learn that it takes probably more people than the viewer can conceive of doing their job at a high level to make a great telecast. And by that, I'm, you know, the producer has got to have command of the ship and adjust on the fly if a game doesn't turn out the way you had hoped or the sound bites you acquired in the morning don't fit to what happens. You have to have exceptional tape operators. If you're an analyst and you're trying to make points, you know, the tape has to understand what you're talking about and be able to access that tape quickly. Play-by-play -play has got to get you where you want to go. The play-by-play -play senses that an analyst is excited. So I would say, one, you learn what a good broadcast is, repetition, and then you have great people around you, which because I've been at ESPN, you know, obviously I have very passionate and knowledgeable sports fans almost across the board. So that helps immensely. And then there was actually one particular moment that made a difference for me. My son at the time, he's 24, so it's probably longer ago than I think it is. But <laughs> I, I just remember sitting watching, I believe it was an Olympics, but it could have been something different. It's so long now. I just remember what he said to me, which was we were sitting there, the announcers covering what we were watching were clearly having a good time with one another. And there was some laughter and there was certainly joy in the announcers. And my son and my, my living room was quite small at the time. And so we were in close proximity to one another. And he said, he just looked at me and he said, Mom, what I don't think you understand is when you're having a good time on the air, we're having a good time with you. And I mm. thought, man, you know what? 
And one of my challenges, Jessica, in terms of relaxing and enjoying myself, and again, I'm going back so far in my career, but one of my challenges back then was I was doing men's college basketball Mm. as an analyst. Could have been the Atlantic 10, could have been the Big East. And because I was one of the few, and I'm not sure if I was the only at the time, but there weren't many women certainly sitting in that chair. And I was thinking, oh, God, you know, I've got to prove to the audience that I know what I'm talking about, because I knew it was foreign to their ear to hear me in that role, going back to your, you know, how do you find your voice? Mm -hmm. So instead of just relaxing and enjoying the telecast and the, the, you know, these incredible athletes doing these, these things that I just enjoy watching, I was trying to prove myself, prove how smart I was. That's, <laughs> that is never a good thing on a telecast because the viewer, the viewer definitely doesn't want to hear how smart you are. They want to enjoy the game with you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to ask about post-game interviews really quickly. My co-host, Shireen, she wants to know if you ever had a time when you're doing a post-game interview with a player after a loss, where it was difficult for you because of the emotional impact on the player, but that it's your job to ask that person a question. Well, I don't ever, we don't ever interview a player in a loss. Okay. uh, Okay. Typically speaking, I would say we interview coaches in a loss. And it's primarily in settings of tournaments. So, I mean, and and really, probably the only time I've had to do that is, you know, I would say a Pat Summit or a Gina Oriama where I'm covering the NCAA women's tournament. And, you know, it would have been they were anticipated to go to the Final Four or anticipated to go to the national championship or win everything. And I do recall both of those people, Gino and Pat, sort of They're both such exceptional pros and committed to the growth of the women's game and understood the responsibility that comes with, you know, that kind of setting. And to be honest with you, in response to that question, it's a great question. I think it's important in in both a loss, but also the euphoria of a win that the person who's doing the interviewing have a certain tone anyway. And the tone would be slightly different in those two circumstances. Sure. But I'll give you an example of where it's important to keep your composure. Okay. I remember doing an interview at Duke. I was when J.J. Reddick was playing there. I don't think I interviewed J.J. But long story short, there was this incredible action late where Duke turns it over on their own baseline, nearly cost themselves a game, and then somehow recovers and then ends up winning the game. And as you can imagine, you know, the Cameron crazies were ecstatic. The energy in the building was incredible. But you still have to be able to say, okay, in the midst of this frenzied atmosphere, I've got to figure out what are the most important things to ask. And I still remember asking my first question was something along the lines of what did Coach K say to get your composure back in that huddle between the turnover Mm-hmm. and the eventual getting the game back in your in your own command. So it's a great question. I would just say it's important as the interviewer that you're not caught up in the emotion of either the devastation of a loss or the euphoria of an incredible win. I wanted to ask about the job that you have now and the breadth of knowledge that you have to have for every single game about 
all the people on the court, the coaches on the sidelines, the teams, what's happened to them across the season. How do you prep to do that kind of in-game analysis? Like how much time goes into you preparing just for one game? Well, I would say the most important thing I do is if I'm not working a game on a particular night, then I'm watching a lot of NBA basketball. That to me is the absolute key because the more you are seeing a team, the more you're recognizing, you know, what the strengths and weaknesses of individual players are, what the relations happen to be, you know, which starters are playing with the second unit. Or does a coach happen to substitute a wholesale substitution where his bench is deep enough that maybe he goes five and then sort of work starters back in? You do a lot of reading as well. You know, if I have a so so my next game, I actually have a nice little break in my schedule, which was beautiful. But Portland, Denver is my next game. And it's it's this coming Friday. So all of this week, I'll be on NBA.com and I'll be identifying the games that Portland and Denver have. And their games this week will become appointment viewing for me. The other thing is I have incredible and it's it's an amazing thing to me now compared to, you know, almost 30 years ago when I started. So I have in my email each morning one email that has the entirety of the NBA's clips. So Denver's clips would be Uh in this email. Portland's clips would be in this email. So now I can hone in on those two teams. And then like, okay, so then ESPN provides me access to something called Second Spectrum, which basically I could, with a few clicks of a button, punch in Joel Embiid's name, and there's a little uh, video icon that's attached to it. And I could say, okay, I want to see all his pick and rolls and click on that icon. Oh, wow. And up would pop all of that information. And then ESPN has an incredible support staff, meaning... You know, we would get a, an email sort of with a synopsis of each team's summaries, which sometimes is really helpful because we have a news editor that has gone back and he has kept up with things through the entirety of the season. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot of prep, but I would say this to you, like everybody does it in my business because the people I work with, they're NBA fans. Right. And it, it doesn't feel like work. Right. You're OK. I, oh, boy, I have a tough day today. I have to I have to read a little bit about NBA. Yesterday, I went to, to my gym and I listened to the Woj pods. He had Doc Rivers on and then he had Nick Nurse on. So as I'm on the treadmill, you know, that kind of gets me through my workout. So, I mean, it's a process, but I'm I'm a fan. Right. Right. I'm a fan and I I understand how incredibly lucky I am to have the job that I have. And and so, you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily feel like work. Some days it does, Jessica. Some days I've I've been at the airport for six hours because I've had multiple delays. And, you know, sometimes the road, you know, I'll sit in a hotel room. It's funny. I was talking to JJ Reddick about this and the aftermath of the Adam Silver, you know, coming out and discussing that he thinks some of his players are unhappy. I had a great discussion with JJ Reddick about it. And he said, I, I definitely think there could be something to that. And, you know, these guys are on the road a lot. They're, they're separated from their families a lot. There's incredible performance pressure on them nightly. And I know that they make a lot of money and they're compensated well, but you know, the vast majority of them, like all of them, like you and I, we have family and we have, you know, things that go on in our personal world that you're trying to deal with every day. And so it's an interesting lifestyle, that's for sure. I So I do, I would be remiss to let you go without asking about this, about your rising popularity 
over the last few years. I mean, it has been, as someone who really looks up to you and is inspired by you, it's been really fun to watch. For those who don't know, probably the best example, or at least the highest profile one, and I feel like you know exactly where I'm going, Doris. Drake wore a shirt to a Raptors game that had your face on it and the words, woman crush every day. Recently, though, there's other stuff like the women's U.S. women's national team all chose to wear the last name of a woman who inspired them on the back of their jersey during a recent game. And Tobin Heath chose you. And yesterday, I bought a shirt from the site Homage that says, my favorite broadcaster is Doris Burke on it. I first saw that shirt when Rachel Nichols posted a picture of herself on in it on Instagram. What do you make of all this? Like, could you have even imagined that this would be no. your life as you're forging a career that almost no other woman has had? No. And I will say this to you know, I've said to my daughter a million times, my daughter's 26. And I always say to her, I love my job. I love my job. But I, I do miss sort of coaching because I felt like when I was coaching those Providence College student athletes for those two years, that I had an impact on their lives, that I could help them be more confident. I remember being that kid when I was 18 to 22 and didn't have a ton of confidence outside the lines you know, of a basketball court. And so I'm blown away by it. I will say, as you know, Jessica, or maybe you're not familiar, there was a very long period of time where where Twitter was not kind. Mm. <laughs> I would say for the first 10 years of Twitter's existence, mm. you know, some heavy objection to me. She's not, you know, I wish she looked like, you know, so-and-so. I was like, well, you know, I wouldn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I don't like her voice or, you know, whatever the criticism might be. And I would say it, it, is, it was the Tobin Heath thing, and I actually tracked down her number. And I called Tobin and I said, I hope you know how I just was so moved by that, Jessica. Mm. I couldn't begin to tell you how moved I was. And I will say it's it's much nicer to be liked than to be disliked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I did want to ask about the flip side of it was that I'm, as you just said, like you've gotten a lot of shit over the years for being a woman who enters men's spaces, talks about men's sports. You actually and you do it really well. And how do you manage that part of your career? Like, do you have advice for the rest of us coming up behind? You mentioned Sarah Spain. And, you know, I have great admiration for Sarah on so many levels. I think she is tremendous professional, exceptional at what she does. Mm -hmm. But I find it fascinating, Jessica, that she chooses Sarah to go back at people at Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. I don't generally engage. First of all, it's not a medium I use tremendously except to root on my Providence College Friars. I will tell you that I don't listen to, I didn't listen to the bad, right? I couldn't let that bad break me or shake me or have an effect on me. And I would say I handle, not that I don't appreciate, especially from my colleagues, from Sarah, which I saw her with that shirt. And Mm -hmm. Allie Clifton was another one. You know, you don't let the good or the bad. Here's what I would say to all of the young women in our business. You have to put your head down and focus on the job immediately in front of you. And there are a couple of ways you can evaluate the job that you're doing. One, you know every single day the amount you're putting into it. And if you are pouring your heart and soul and you are working hard on it, then so be it. It, There is no job too big, no job too small. Because I guarantee you, when I was the radio announcer for Providence College Women's Basketball, 
and when I was the radio announcer for the New York Liberty, no one was listening. No one was right. Like Mm -hmm. we got put up the WNBA broadcast on radio. David Stern had the brilliant idea to put when you got put on hold in 1997 or 1998 at the NBA offices, you would hear our broadcasts. Okay, so those were my listeners. It didn't matter because I was honing my skills the good or the bad evaluations from people who are not directly either employing you or deciding what jobs you get, they don't really matter. You have to decide the job you're doing. And then your employers, those people who hire you will tell you the job you're doing by the assignments you get. And it's not easy. Believe me, I say that to you and understand this, that I, when I felt it, like I'll give you one example. I don't know how this happened, but this is years ago when I'm covering Big East men's basketball before the split with the American Conference. Mm -hmm. Somehow this man decided I had covered Syracuse Temple. He was a Syracuse fan. Temple upset Syracuse as a top 10 team. Somehow this man's thoughts to me on Twitter were coming into my email and he basically said, I'm going to haunt you every day. And he would send the most vile, vicious things. And it wasn't until my daughter got on my phone and basically said, this is how you block somebody, mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, oh, amen. There we go. (laughs) Like, okay. And then the only other thing, like one time I got 15 photocopy pages of basically what was anti-women literature. The way fan mail kind of makes its way to you is it would be sent to ESPN. And when you had enough of it, they would put it in an envelope and come to you. And this 15 photocopied pages of, of anti-woman, like, it was disturbing. And I was like, ooh. And it's just, you you have to put it somehow. And I'm not telling you it's easy because I've been hurt by stuff. I'm not telling you I haven't read any of it. I have. But you have to be able to put it aside and put it in, in its appropriate box and just say, you know what? I love my job. There are good and bad pieces of it. And I'm just going to keep plugging away. And you just keep plugging away. That's what I've done for 30 years, basically. Keep plugging away. Thank you for that. I would like to finish up by doing a lightning round of questions, if that's okay with you. My mind doesn't work very fast. (laughs) (laughs) That's fine. Do you have a favorite player that you enjoyed interviewing? No, I would say some of my most memorable moments were LeBron James. Okay. We love LeBron James on this show. Favorite coach to interview? And this is definitely a Shereen question. Favorite coach? Oof. Oh, man, that's a hard one. I'm, you, you know, the one I dread is Greg Popovich still to this day. I'm <laughs> Famously. Sweating. I'm sweating. I'm nervous. It's kept me up the night before. <laughs> so he would be my least favorite. Uh, probably my favorite is Doc Rivers. Oh, okay. This is also a Shereen question. Do you, growing up in New Jersey, do you have a soft spot for the Knicks and the Liberty? So, a total soft spot. Yes, of course. <laughs> Very nice. Do you, what is your favorite pair of sneakers? Oh, Boy, that is a great question. When I was a kid, I had a pair of black Puma Clydes, low suede with a white stripe. They were bad ass sneakers. <laughs> right now in the game, who's the most underrated men's player in the NBA? Oh, gosh, underrated. Jeez. Maybe Domantas Sabonis. Okay. Okay. I wanted to ask specifically about the NBA playoffs that they're starting a couple weeks, I think on April 14th. Are there under the radar players or teams, those dark horses that our listeners should be paying attention to? Yeah, I am fascinated to see what happens with the Utah Jazz, who had an absolutely brutal schedule out of the gates. 
you know, were, were dangling toward the outside of the playoff picture, I believe, at one point, but have, you know, the schedule lightens. They've pulled their defense together. So I'm really curious who Utah matches up with and, and how far they can go. Boy, under-the-radar players. You know, the other thing that I really am curious about, because I think he's integral to the success of Milwaukee, you know, the, the Malcolm Brogdon. He's he's had a year where he's gone 50% field goal, 40% three-point, 90% free throws. It is the absolute best indicator of somebody having an incredibly efficient year. And I'm just curious, can he get back and get healthy? Because, you know, I think the East is formidable at the top. And, you know, Giannis is, is, gosh, you know, he's so close to an MVP award. Can Malcolm and, and Miritich get back and get healthy? So I'm sorry, those are rapid fire, but I am long-winded by nature, as you can no, tell. No, that was wonderful. I would listen to you talk all day. And just remind us your next assignment when, or when we can hear you next. It's a, a Portland at Denver this coming Friday night. It would be a 1030 Eastern tip. Awesome. Thank you so much, Doris Burke, oh. for being on Burn It All Down. This has been wonderful. Jessica, my pleasure. My pleasure. You guys keep uh, keep plugging away at this. I love it. Thank you all so much for listening to this uh, special best of 2019 edition of Burn It All Down. We will be back next week with our first brand new episode of 2020. There's going to be tons to discuss. Can't wait to talk to you all then. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Follow us on Facebook at Burn It All Down. Follow us on, um, what else am I forgetting? There's so many. Go to our website, burnitalldownpod.com, where you can find links to show notes, uh, bios, everything you could possibly need. Um, we're on Instagram as well. Shelby, our social media guru, is doing a phenomenal job with our Instagram. And most importantly, if you want to give us a little gift to start off the 2020 season, besides, you know, subscribing to our Patreon, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and send us a love note, that would be amazing. That really helps grow our podcast. Thanks again for listening and for supporting this labor of love. Let's kick off this next decade in style. Oh,